Yeah, I set my alarm uh, so I get up, and when the alarm went off, I got up so I could come up here and hear them practice that song. I love that. Uh, welcome to week three of 40 Days in the Word. I'm Andrew Walter. I work with the teenagers here at Rockbrook. I love working with the teenagers. The whole church is doing this 40 Days in the Word uh, series. Uh, the teens are having a great time in this series. We call it the book. That's what we titled it. Uh, we're talking about the Bible. Have you ever thought, I just never get anything out of the Bible. When I read it, it's boring. I don't get anything out of it. It doesn't make sense. I don't know what the big deal about it is. Uh, if you've ever felt like that, you have picked a good weekend to come to church. Because I'm going to explain why the Bible is boring to you. And how God wants to open it up how you can start seeing what God wants you to see. So, welcome to Rockbrook Youth Group. Who wrote the Bible, when was it written, and what in the world is the book of Revelation about? The Bible is not simply one book, but rather 66 different books written by 40 different authors, fishermen, kings, shepherds, doctors, and prophets, in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, over a period of 1,500 years. They are called scriptures, and these scriptures share one common storyline, the creation, fall, and redemption of mankind. Now that leaves one really big question. Why in the world was it written? Think about an owner's manual for a car. It tells you who made it, why it was made, and how to maintain it. Now I replace car with life, and there's your answer. The Bible reveals to us why we were created, acts as a guide as we strive to stay on the right path, and shows us the way to our salvation. Now, how is the Bible organized? Like we said, it's actually 66 separate books. The first 39 make up the Old Testament and cover everything from creation to wars, wisdom to poetry, history to prophecy, and a lot of points to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The New Testament contains eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ's times of earth, a history of how the Christian church began and grew, and a whole slew of letters written to those churches by the apostles. And finally, we top it all off with the book of Revelation, which is essentially a crazy vision of the end of the world given to an apostle named John. And that is the book. In fact, the Bible is a difficult book. If you don't understand the principle of illumination. That's what we're going to talk about this week. A couple of weeks ago, I was buying some light bulbs at Walmart. Have you been in the light bulb section lately? <laughs> and, like, I mean, it, there are tons of new style bulbs. It took me 15 minutes of reading packages to finally pick a light bulb, trying to figure out, what does this mean? How Can't I just get a simple number? You know, I, I thought I'd try one of the new style bulbs, and I got it home, and the light was so bright and so white, it made the place look like a hospital operating room. Now, I don't like this at all. Look at the carpet. It, Hospital operating room is not the kind of ambiance I'm looking for. But the point I want to make is, the brighter the bulb, the clearer you see. Isn't that true? Brightness increases clarity. The more light, the more you can see. That's why when you get your picture taken, you, you don't want a bright light on you. Because it's going to show every malformation, every blemish, every wart, every pimple, every little thing on your face. No, you want soft light. Can we shoot this one through gauze? I, quote from my father, everybody looks good in the dark. 
the more light you have, the more it's clear. This is true when it comes to God's Word. The more light, the more enlightened your mind, the more illuminated your mind, the more you're going to get out of God's Word. It's not just the Bible. It's illumination. But what is illumination? In your notes, letting the Holy Spirit show me the meaning of God's Word and how it applies to my life. Before Jesus went to heaven, He said, I'm going to send my Spirit to live with you and live in you. The Holy Spirit. One of the things that the Holy Spirit job is to do is to illuminate the Bible. Help you see things in the book that you would not otherwise see. If you don't have that, you're going to miss a lot that's in the Bible. It's like a toy that doesn't have batteries. It's still a toy, but it's not up to its full potential. You need the power to make that toy run. God says, not only have I given you revelation, but I've given you inspiration. That's the power to interpret, to understand, to see things that you've never seen before. That's the Holy Spirit's job. So how does illumination work? Ephesians 1 explains it. I pray also that the eyes of your heart... Okay, eyes of your heart. What does that mean? I'll get to that in a minute. That may be enlightened. That means illuminated. In order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and His incomparably great power for us who believe. Circle the phrase, eyes of your heart. When you were born, God gave you five senses. You had to hear, taste, touch, smell, feel. When you develop a personal relationship with Jesus, when you are born again, God gives you a second set of senses. You get spiritual ears to hear some things that you have never heard before. You get spiritual eyes to see some things in life that you had never seen before. These are the eyes of your heart, the spiritual senses. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. Circle enlightened. What it means is that when you're reading the Bible, all of a sudden the light bulb comes on in your mind and you go, Oh, I have read this verse many times, but I have never seen that before. That's illumination. What actually happens when God opens my spiritual eyes? Number one, I see the solution to my problem. Let's look at the book of Genesis, chapter 21. God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation, the nation of Israel, and that God would give him a son to be the heir of this great nation. And at 90 years of age, Abraham still doesn't have a son. This is a problem. Sarah says, no kidding, it's a problem. Uh, it's a big problem. So Sarah comes up with plan B. Sarah says to Abraham, I'm too old to have a baby. Why don't you take my handmaiden, Hagar? And she'll be a surrogate mother, and you can have a baby through her. And Abraham goes, okay, you're probably right. So Hagar gets pregnant with Abraham's child. This is not God's plan. This is Sarah's plan. A beautiful little baby boy is born, and they name him Ishmael. And Ishmael begins to grow up, and Abraham holds Ishmael up before God. And Abraham says, God, you have given me the promised boy. And God says, uh, that's not my plan. That's Sarah's plan. Now, I love Ishmael. I will make him into a great nation too. But he is not the promised miracle boy. 
later, by a miracle, Sarah does get pregnant, and she has a little boy named Isaac. This conception was a act of absolute trust and faith. A building block on which God would construct His plan to redeem humanity and the whole of creation. Isaac becomes the father of the Jewish nation. Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab nations. Ishmael is the father of all the Arab nations today. Sarah gets upset. She starts getting jealous and she is thinking, Ishmael shouldn't even be here. Abraham's going to favor him. He's older. And she gets jealous and she kicks Hagar and her young baby boy out. She says, get out of here. You are no longer my assistant. And she sends them out into the desert. But we pick up the story. Genesis 21, verse 14. It says this, Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water. Uh, They made canteens out of animal skins in those days. And he gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. He's kicking them out of the house. She went on her own and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy Ishmael under one of the bushes. She went off and sat down nearby, about a bow shot away. For she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. Not only are they starving to death, they're dying of thirst. They're out in the desert. She says, I cannot watch my boy die. As she sat there nearby, she began to sob. This is a tragic scene of rejection. God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called out to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift up the boy. Take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And indeed he did. All of the Arab nations came out of Israel. We pick up the story in verse 19 on your outline. Then God opened her eyes. Circle that phrase, opened her eyes. And she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin, the canteen, with water and gave the boy a drink. Here's the point. She had the solution right in front of her. Uh, uh, There was a well of water. But she couldn't see it until God opened her eyes, illuminated her mind. You have problems in your life. You're thinking, I don't see any way around this. I cannot find a solution. You need the Holy Spirit to open your spiritual eyes. When God opens your eyes, you see resources that were literally right there in front of you, but you didn't see them. Second benefit of having your eyes open, spiritually open, is I see the barrier to my progress. You have some things that you have been wanting to do in life. You've been wanting to start a business, or start a family, or get out of debt, You've had some goal or some dream, and you have been trying to make progress. But you just keep bumping up against an invisible wall. You're going, I'm doing the best I can. I can't get any progress. You need to have your eyes illuminated. Numbers 22 gives us a good example of this. It's a guy named Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God. He is a man of God. But Balaam decides, he agrees to help the bad guys. This ticks off God. God goes, Balaam, 
you are supposed to be my representative, and you're going to go help some of the bad guys. Balaam starts on his journey to go help the bad guys. And God puts an angel in his path to block his progress. But Balaam can't see the angel. Balaam doesn't know what's going on. Numbers 22, verse 22. But God was furious that Balaam was going. So he sent the angel of the Lord to stand in the road to block his way. Balaam's donkey suddenly saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. The donkey could see him, but Balaam didn't. And the donkey bolted off the road into a field out of fear. But Balaam beat the donkey, turned it back onto the road. Okay, this is funny. Balaam can't see what's going on, but the donkey can. There is an angel on the road with a big sword, and the donkey's going, I'm not going down there. Okay, the donkey gets, you know, can see the angel, but Balaam doesn't see it. Second time, this it says, then the angel of the Lord stood at a place where the road narrowed. This is the second time. Between two vineyard walls, okay, it's very narrow, the angel of the Lord stood in the middle. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing there, it tried to squeeze by the angel and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. We always get hurt when we try to do something that God doesn't want us to do. So Balaam beat the donkey again. He's angry. Third time. Then the angel of the Lord moved further down the road and stood in a place so narrow that the donkey could not get by at all. This time when the donkey saw the angel, it lay down under Balaam. Okay, smart donkey. I give up. You know, he just collapsed and gives up. In a fit of rage, the Bible says, Balaam beat it again with his staff. We pick up the story on your outline, verse 31. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. Circle that phrase. That's illumination. He opened Balaam's eyes, and now Balaam saw what the problem was. He saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So what does Balaam do now that his eyes are open? He bowed low and fell face down. He worships God. Here's the point. You have plans in your life that aren't working out. You're getting mad at everybody else. You're mad at your wife. You're mad at your husband. You're beating your donkey. You are taking it out on the kids. You're talking bad about your boss behind his back. You're mad at everybody because you can't see what the real problem is. God is trying to keep you from making a serious mistake. God's saying, I am not letting you go down that road. No matter how much you beat your head against the wall, I am not letting you go down there because I love you too much. When your progress is being blocked, you've got one of two choices. Beat the donkey or let God open your eyes. Number three, when God opens my eyes, I see the defense for what's attacking me. I see the defense of how God's going to defend me for things that are attacking me. Everybody feels under attack at different points in their life. Uh, maybe you feel like you're under attack from germs. You know, the weather's changing. You feel like you're getting sick. Maybe you feel like you're under attack uh, by the economy. You've lost your job or your income or your retirement. You feel like you're under attack by former friends. You feel like you're under attack by your own family. Or you feel like you're under attack by your own mind. And the fears are beating you up. You feel like you're being beaten down. You're under attack. You think you're all alone. And you don't know what God is going to do in all of that. 
Second Kings, Elisha and the Arameans. Uh, there was a nation called Aram. But every time, uh, Aram would just attack Israel. They are always at war with Israel, attacking Israel over and over again. And every time they would attack Israel, God would tell Elisha, Elisha is the prophet of God in Israel, God would tell Elisha what the king of Aram's plans were. He would tell him the war plans, where he's going to attack, what he's going to do in advance. And Elisha would tell the king of Israel. And Israel would kick the king of Aram, their, their army, they'd kick their rear just every time. And Israel wins every time. And this gets very old for the king of Aram. He goes, I can't win, no matter what brilliant plan I come up with. Somebody's finding out. He thinks there's a traitor in his own people, sharing the secrets. Verse 10, 2 Kings. This is what happened. Uh, the, the leak happened several times. So the king of Aram became very upset over it. He called in his officers and demanded, Which of you is the traitor? Who has been informing the king of Israel of my plans? It's not us, my lord, uh, one of the officers replied. <laughs> it's Elisha. Elisha, the prophet of Israel, tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom, he knows your plans even before you tell us. The king said, you go find where Elisha is, and we're going to send the troops to seize him. We're going to send the whole army after this one guy. We're going to stop the leak. You go find out where he is. The report came back. Elisha is at Dothan. Uh, Dothan is a little town in Israel. So one night, the king of army sent a uh, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city uh, where Elisha is in Dothan. When Elisha's servant, a guy named Gehazi, got up early the next morning and went outside, he saw the city was surrounded by troops, by chariots, by horses, and Elisha's servant has a panic attack. He goes, "We're gonna." You know, there's all these attackers outside. He runs back in and tells Elisha, what do we do now? He cries out to Elisha. And Elisha replied, don't be afraid, for there are more on our side than on theirs. And Gehazi is going, okay, from a human standpoint, that is not true. You know, there are like several thousand soldiers out there and just you and me. I went, you know, early in the morning, had to go out use the restroom. Don't need to now. There's a lot of you know, armies out there. It's just two against an entire army. Verse 17. Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes. Circle that phrase. He's talking about his servant. Open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked out. And he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There are evidently some supernatural forces here that are going to protect us that I haven't been able to see before. And he sees it. Now he's not afraid anymore. You lose your fear when God is near. Uh, the rest of it says this. As the Aramean army advanced towards them, Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, please make them blind. And the Lord did as Elisha asked. So Elisha went out and told them, you've come the wrong way. This is funny. He's talking to the enemy army that has come to capture him in Dothan. 
and they are all blind now. And he says, you've come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. He is deceiving them, flat out deceiving them. This isn't the right city. These aren't the droids you're looking for. He thought that was, yeah, it's from here. Uh, Follow me. I'll take you to the man you're looking for. He is standing right in front of them. And he led them to Samaria. What's in Samaria? The king of Israel and the massive Israeli army. So here Elisha is leading the enemy army that has been blinded. Uh, One guy leading right into the hands of the Israeli army. Says as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, O Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. And the Lord did. And they discovered they were in Samaria. When the king, when Elisha's king, the king of Israel, saw the captive enemy army, he shouted to Elisha, Should I kill them? Of course not, Elisha told him. Do we kill prisoners of war? No. Give them food and drink, send them home again. So the king of Israel made a great feast for the Aramean army. And then he sent them home to their king. After that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. I guess so. The easiest way to get rid of an enemy is to turn them into a friend. Here's the point. God needs to open your eyes so you can see the resources that are on your side. There are angels around you all the time. You can't see them, but they're around you all the time. God's forces are there to protect you. God says, I see it from, uh, from, you know, from God's viewpoint. I-, I can see the defense, and all of a sudden, my fear goes down dramatically. Fourth benefit of being able to see with spiritual eyes, to have my mind illuminated, is I see how God is walking with me. When God opens my eyes, I see how God is walking with me. He has been with me all along, and I just didn't see it. I don't know what you're going through right now. You may have felt lonely. You don't think that God is with you. You are dead wrong. He has been with you all along. You just can't see it until your mind is illuminated. Luke 24, Easter Sunday, the very first Easter Sunday. Over the past 72 hours, a lot has happened. Jesus Christ has been arrested. He's been whipped, beaten, tortured, crucified. He died. They buried him in a, in a tomb. The disciples are crushed. The dream is finished. We thought this guy was God. We thought he was the Messiah. They killed him. They are probably going to kill us. The disciples are fleeing for their lives. They're running away. They're confused. They're in grief. They are crying. On Easter morning, some women go down to the tomb. Uh, The tomb is broken open. The body is gone. And angels are saying, he is risen. Uh, They run and tell the disciples. The disciples check the tomb. The body is gone. But they can't believe it. Over the next 40 days, Jesus walks around Jerusalem. One one time he even talks to a crowd of 500 people. That would have been weird. If I was one of the people yelling, crucify him, crucify him, watching him die, and then two weeks later, Jesus comes walking down the street. He's back. Uh, That's why within a few years, there were thousands of Christians in the church of Jerusalem. 
because there were so many eyewitnesses. It wasn't just a few people who saw Jesus. He was walking around Jerusalem for 40 days. Hundreds of thousands of people by the year 20 had come to Christ. But, but this is later that day. A couple of Jesus' disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. They are getting out of town. They're leaving Jerusalem in fear for their life. Jesus shows up and starts walking with them. But because they are in such grief, they don't even recognize him. Their eyes are closed. They don't even notice who is with them. Verse 15 of Luke 24. Suddenly, Jesus himself came along and joined them, the two disciples, and began walking beside them. But they didn't know who he was because God kept them from recognizing Jesus said, you seem to be in deep discussion about something. What are you so concerned about? Uh, because they're talking about the crucifixion. They're talking about all that's gone on, the chaos that's in Jerusalem. Uh, they stopped short. Sadness on their faces. Then Cleopas said, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened in the last few days. And Jesus said, what things? He's playing dumb. He, he obviously knows what's going on. I mean, Jesus was the center of attention. You know, he knows what's going on, but he says, but what things? The disciples said, the things that happened to Jesus, the man of Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did wonderful miracles. He was a mighty teacher, highly regarded by both God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders arrested him, handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought this guy was God, but he's dead now. We thought he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. Uh, all this happened three days ago, they continued. Uh, then some women were at his tomb early this morning. They came back with an amazing report. They said the body was missing, that they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. Uh, some of our men ran out to see as men ran out to see, and sure enough, Jesus' body was gone, just as the woman had said. So they're confused. They're confused. They haven't seen Jesus. They don't see him right now. He's walking right by him. Uh, they don't know what to believe. Then Jesus said, You are such foolish people. You find it so hard to believe that all the prophets, that all the prophets wrote in the Scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted by the prophets that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things? before entering into the time of glory. Then Jesus quoted passages from the writings of Moses. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, all, and all the prophets uh, from the Old Testament. Explaining what all the scriptures said about him. By this time, uh, the two disciples of Jesus were nearing Emmaus. At the end of their journey, Jesus would have gone on, but they begged him to stay the night with them. Since it was getting late, so he, Jesus, went home with them. They still didn't recognize him. They sat down to eat. Jesus took a small loaf of bread, just like he did at the Last Supper. Asked God's blessing on it, just like he did at the Last Supper. Broke it and gave it to him. Verse 31. Then their eyes were opened. Circle that phrase. And they recognized him. Their eyes were open. They recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. That would be a mind-blower. That is illumination. In their grief, they could not see that Jesus was with them. They needed illumination. I don't know what you have lost. You may have lost a loved one. You may have lost your health. You may have lost your job. 
You may have lost an important relationship or a big deal, and you are grieving. You cannot see that every step of the way, Jesus has been walking with you. You have never been alone. You have never been by yourself. That God is walking with you, but your eyes are blinded. You can't see it. Now do you realize how important illumination is? Batteries included. Without illumination, you just look at the book, and a lot of it doesn't make sense. It's just words on a page. So how do I get that kind of illumination? You have to do five things. Uh, first one is obvious. I must begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. Until you begin that relationship, you're blind. You can only see from a human viewpoint. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the man without the Spirit, that means he's not born, born again, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Underline that phrase, cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. This is why it is nonsense to expect unbelievers to act like believers until they are. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. The devil who rules this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. They cannot see the light of the good news. None of us saw it until we step across the line. All of a sudden, the blinders come off. That's why Jesus says in John 3, 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God. You can't see what God is doing until he is born again. The second thing you have to do is I must ask God in faith to open my eyes. I pray Psalm 119.18, open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your laws. That was our memory verse for last week. Here's the point. There are wonderful things in this book. But when you don't see them, it's not the Bible's fault. It's because you're blind. You can't see the wonder-filled things until your eyes have been opened. It takes illumination. Third thing, I come with a humble attitude. If I come to the, God, to the Word of God and I say, I've got this all figured out. I don't need God's help to help with my marriage issues. I don't really need God's help on this financial issue. I'm figuring it out myself. Then you are not going to get anything. Your eyes are going to be closed. You come with a humble attitude. Psalm 25.9 says, He guides. That's what you need this week. You need guidance. He guides the humble. If you come humbly, God will guide you. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them His way. I ask God in faith to open my eyes. I come with a humble attitude. For I cleanse my heart of sin and conflict. I cannot get my eyes open if my body and my mind are full of junk. That's why the Bible says in Matthew 5.8, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You can't see it unless your heart is pure. I ask God to open my eyes. I come with a humble attitude. Cleanse my heart of sin and conflict. And fifth, I commit in advance to do what God says. Psalm 119 says, Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them. See the promise? Commitment. I will keep them. You teach me and I'll do it. Give me understanding and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Whatever you show me, I'm going to act on it. Why? Because acting on it is the bottom line. God is not going to give you step two until you act on step one.
So James one twenty two. this is our memory verse for this week. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. James one twenty two. Would you bow your heads with me? Would you pray this prayer in your mind? If you've never invited Christ into your life, say, Jesus Christ, I open my life to you. I need to be born again. I need to be saved. I need to see. Thank you for dying on the cross for me, for forgiving all the wrong things I've ever done. I want to learn to love you. And then all of us can pray, I ask that you open my eyes. I don't want to be walking around in the dark. Right now, in advance, I want to do whatever you tell me to, whether I understand it or not. Because you're God and I'm not. I don't want to merely listen to the word and so deceive myself. I want to do what it says. Lord, be with us this week. Teach us your ways. May our small groups trust you more, serve you better. We pray all these things. In your very precious name, amen.